Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan. And today with me, a reoccurring guest, Marcel Plista. Marcel, as I think people who follow the podcast will probably know already, is a part of the team of Great Dynamics and he's currently doing his PhD at St. Andrews. And he was a former analyst at the DIA. And today we're going to talk about a couple of interesting things that are happening in the world. Obviously, we're going to speak about intelligence, tradecraft-related topics, because I know a lot of you that listen to this podcast want that, so let's get into it. Marcel, welcome. Thanks, good to be back. So, what's been keeping you busy lately? I've been focused on a couple of a couple of different things. I just had a had an article run that I co-authored uh, with Zach Callenborn, who might actually be a good podcast guest, but that's another issue. It's for CSIS, the think tank, and it's on UGVs and then the potential for uh, UGVs in, in Ukraine, unmanned ground vehicles. All right. Very interesting. I know that people probably wondering like what our opinion is on Finland's joining NATO. Mm. So yeah, let's start off with that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's sort of the, that's sort of the hot news right now. Although I think it, I think there needs to be a, a little bit of context in the sense that, um, Finland is joining NATO and there's obviously, you know, stuff that Russia has to worry about as a result of that, right? Finland has a very, very long border with Russia. Then, and the Soviet Union, you know, fought a, a very high profile war in the 1940s and there was a, in 1930s, uh, and there was some semi colonial, you know, history before that, right? Depending on, depending on who you ask. And it's also, you know, Finland maintains a large military, right? They, I think they spend more than 2% of their GDP on defense. So they're, they're sort of formidable militarily in, in a way that not all NATO allies are. So it's a bigger issue for Russia. But, you know, it's also worth pointing out that this really just formalizes a longer trend in partnership between NATO and Finland. Finland has sort of been a, mm-hmm. been a NATO partner for some time. Um, yeah. You know, the um, uh, they were they were, you know, one of the initial joiners of the Partnership for Peace, which was a, a NATO sort of program to reach out to former Soviet countries. And, and they were um, as well as other countries because Finland wasn't a Soviet country, of course. And, you know, they, they were involved in joint operations and exercises with NATO for, for a long time. And they obviously had relationships with the other Scandinavian countries that were bilateral. So this is. Obviously, Finland joining NATO is notable, but it is worth pointing out that sort of Finland has been sort of in partnership working with NATO for quite some time. So it's not necessarily quite as much of a shock for uh, for Russia as, as sort of, you know, Twitter might be making it out to be. Yeah, absolutely. I think also people underestimate, as you said, how prepared Finland is as a country and as a people because of lessons learned uh, in the recent history. And I think as you said about the border, like some people might know that, that know me, but, but I have an interesting relationship with Finland and I won't go too deep into that. But I will say that I think the Russians are definitely worried in the sense that this is not Estonia, for example, or, or any of the Baltics and not saying anything bad about them. They, they may each have, have made, you know, significant strides in their development of their military. But I think, I think not just in the U.S., but, but in some places in Europe, even so-called experts don't know how well Finland is being prepared and have been doing exercises for years with the U.S. military, with, you know, as you said, with other Nordic countries. And now there is this plan for Nordic countries to combine their, their air forces and, and function more like one organization. I think that's a, that's an interesting prospect. And particularly if you have in mind that uh, Finland is getting the F-35s indeed for their Air Force. I think they ordered like 68 of them. So that's going to be an interesting one, especially if you look at interoperability and standardization. The one thing I haven't really seen people talk about, and, and, and I think this will be an interesting conundrum, is that like Finland's small arms, because it's still based on Warsaw Pact, yeah. More arms. What do yeah. you think of that? I mean, so I, I think when it comes to, to interoperability, I think the, the, the biggest issues tend to be those like big systems, right? Like the, you know, the aircraft and, and the vehicles. And, um, my understanding is that, I mean, th- before the F-35s, you know, Finland flew F-18s. I think they, yeah. I think they were flying, um, other Scandinavian countries planes as well. So, so there is, and, and obviously Finnish defense 
folks want to uh, want to export, you know, to NATO countries as well. So they're they're sort of taking on interoperability themselves. With the small arms, yeah, I think their main service rifle is, you know, a sort of uh, non-NATO standard caliber. And I think part of their deal was that they weren't going to, they weren't going to change that basically until the end of the service life of that particular rifle, which I mean, you know, fair enough. Part of the, I know part of the Finnish model is sort of conscription and and more along the lines of mass mobilization. So you don't necessarily want to have a gap where you don't have enough rifles for everyone, if that's the case. But, you know, Finland isn't the first country, I think, that had a large stock of, of Soviet, you know, Soviet era or, or sort of older non-NATO standard uh, weapons. So so I think it's it's not it's not the biggest, necessarily the biggest issue. It might complicate, you know, uh, supply chains uh, if, if something really big went down really quickly. But I think in the long term, that's an easier issue to iron out than uh, if they're like, you know, air defense systems or tanks or, or aircraft weren't interoperable. I think one one last thing to to sort of bring up on this issue is the NATO NATO Russia Founding Act of 1997, which mm-hmm. of course everyone is intimately mm-hmm. familiar with already. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, the basically it's where NATO promised that it wasn't going to NATO wasn't going to station units permanently in countries that bordered Russia unless it was part of that country's uh, national military. This is why a lot of the NATO forces stationed in the Baltic countries are, are expressed as a rotation, because you need to you need to rotate troops in and out. You can't permanently base them there, uh, the way mm-hmm. that the U.S. does in, in in Germany, for instance, which doesn't border Russia. The future of this agreement is sort of totally up in the air right now because of the war in Ukraine. So this this sort of leads to to a situation where you could have hypothetically NATO troops stationed permanently in Finland if Finland agrees to it, you know, in the long term. And that's that's another calculation Russia has to make is, you know, not only is Finland, as we know from history, uh, a bit difficult to invade. And not only do they have a uh, a competent military of their own, but there it's it's a uh, there's a growing issue of how NATO will act to um, to shore up Finland's defenses even more. Yeah, absolutely. I think in this question was brought up just before the or in the process of of, of joining NATO, I think. Finland said they were open for bases, but Sweden not so much. I might be wrong. We have two two really good articles actually on GreatDynamics.com. A shameless plug there. Uh, <laughs> I think I think they give you they give you a lot of insight of like the strategic mindset of of Sweden and Finland. And we have to pay attention to there were just elections in Finland, and the ruling party lost, so there might be different calculations in parliament, even though there was a wide support for joining NATO. So I don't think that will change necessarily. But the appetite to have foreign troops based in, in, in Finland, particularly since Finland and Sweden maintained for a long time their neutrality, will be an interesting prospect, not just for Finland, but for Russia and how it will calculate that. And the last thing I wanted to say is, obviously, the competition for the Arctic well, Finland plays much, uh, yeah. an important role. They used to have access to the Arctic Sea, but since I think the continuation war, uh, even the winter war, they don't have that anymore. They lost considerable territory to Russia. So that's an interesting prospect. What's what's going to happen? That's going to heat up even more. And yeah, um, I'm because I have family in Finland. For me, it's it's interesting to so I follow it on different fronts, and I've written in the past a lot about Finland. It's a very interesting country. And uh I'm 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 cautiously optimistic about this decision to to join NATO. Yeah. I mean the it seems that for Finland it's a very you know, it's a very clear calculation. It's not so much about sort of like broader abstract things, right? Like European solidarity or stuff like or stuff like that. When when you look at sort of the polling in Finland uh, at times where it was more in favor of joining NATO. You know, the big, the big, uh, for, for most of Finland's history, they've, they've been opposed to it. But for, you know, where, where it got closest to net positive for NATO was like closer to 2008, right? The invasion of Georgia by Russia, mm-hmm. quite close in, in, uh, 2014, 2015 during the first, the first Russian, uh, invasion of Ukraine. So it's, you know, I think it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a very clear cost benefit analysis for Finns, I think. Yeah. And I think now looking at obviously the, the invasion in uh, in Ukraine. I don't know what the calculation was there for the Russians, but obviously it turned out so much worse than 
even their best of planners could have thought. And you mentioned beginning of the podcast, you and a colleague wrote about UGVs, unmanned ground vehicles, and how they could play a role. Before you go into that and and you go into the, the applications in Ukraine, I just wanted to say that I find it interesting that Russia has been fielding UGVs in combat roles or uh, logistic roles in Syria, but we have not seen them once in Ukraine. I don't know if, if you guys talked about that, but I, I would love to hear more about not just from the West, but also from Russia's side. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we didn't we didn't talk about Russian use of UGVs in Syria specifically. We we sort of mentioned at the beginning, uh, Russia made a lot of hay about its deployment of the marker UGV. And this is sort of a trend that we saw when we were looking at for both sides UGVs was there's a lot more sort of press releases about them than there are actual footage of their use. And that could just be because there's, you know, mm-hmm. only only so much combat footage, only so much uh, footage, especially of a sensitive or assistance sensitive system. But but yeah, uh, the marker, I don't think I've seen any videos of, of it being used in combat or the sort of a set of more ad hoc UGVs you see. I don't, I don't know if you've seen the, the Twitter videos where they'll attach like a big generator or a battery to the back of a trailer. And, you know, it's, it looks like uh, yeah. MacGyver, like a really <laughs> ramshackle stuff. Yeah. Um, and what we're seeing right now is uh, press from both sides about, uh, I, I guess, I, I don't know what you would term them, but there is sort of like mobile mines, right? So it's a, it's a UGV that's essentially just a, a race car or, you know, four wheels. And it just has an anti-tank mine on the top of it supposedly these these are going to be driven under you know vehicles or into trenches and detonated so there's that in terms of what we what we talked about in the article in in more detail it was it was more about the potential benefits to sending ugvs because there's a lot of ugvs in development there's a lot of ugvs that are being prototyped right now that the u.s military and other militaries are looking at and they're looking to integrate so so there's benefits potentially to sending them to to ukraine for both lethal and non-lethal applications. So, you know, lethally, obviously, you know, I think there's there, there's a lot of press and coverage about, you know, mounting rifles on them, mounting small artillery or launchers or, or, or putting AI into them. But yeah. there's also a lot of non-lethal applications as well, right? Something that Ukraine needs very, very desperately is ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, and particularly sensors that, that can see at night and can see infrared. And so a lot of UGVs that that are on the market do sort of support those sensors. And a lot of them, especially the larger ones, have masts. So they can move, they can put that sensor, you know, above an obstacle, above a tree line. And that's safer than uh, sending someone up there to go take a look. Yeah. And I think there is a, um, this robotics company in Estonia, Milram uh, Robotics. I think they, they are pretty advanced and they have fielded their platform I believe in Mali with Estonian military for uh, logistics. They also sent some to Ukraine. All right. Allegedly. Yeah. The, okay. the Themis. Um, yeah. The, the Themis, the Themis, I think is, is, uh, I, it, it seems like Estonia and Turkey, uh, are, are mm. a little bit, a little bit, uh, ahead right now, uh, to me at least, um, in terms of, in terms of actually having these things out and about. The, the Themis is, is a great example of a trend that we're seeing in UGVs, which is that they're very, very modular. Uh, so a Themis could a Themis could just as easily carry stuff or or do uh, casualty evacuations as it could you know be a platform to to launch a drone from or or do ISR or be a firefighter. It's 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 very versatile, and that's that's one of the reasons why it would be interesting to sort of see how they perform in Ukraine, um, to see what roles they they in what roles they make things safer for personnel, and what roles they're more effective, and, and in what roles they they are. Um, I think we're seeing that very much with the UAVs in terms in Ukraine, in terms of what they're effective for, what they're useful for, where these things are trending, and a little bit for USVs. Uh, if you look at if you look at the attacks on uh, the Russian Navy uh, with unmanned surface vessels, um, I think UGVs are are another field where um, you know we could see more developments and see see where where the future of UGVs is headed. Yeah, well, very interesting. I think what I'm a little bit surprised about. With the amount of footage, I mean, there's thousands of hours now on combat footage in, in Ukraine, but s- certain weapon systems and uh, solutions that we know have been fielded, there are no videos or images from. You think that's under strict communication with the manufacturer or 
this is something that Ukrainian intelligence feels that that they don't want to share that or is it just very limited use and that's why it's not really showing up i think it's i think it's all of the above i also think that i get the impression that some units in some ukrainian units are are more or less camera shy than others right uh, i think that i think that mm. some units are more willing to film themselves and, and do vlogs and fundraise especially i think i think a lot of artillery units are, are big fans of of doing that because then they can uh, they can sell uh you know writing your name on the shell and stuff like that, yeah. but I, but I do think I do think if something's uh, tech, like a, a sensitive technology, or that it's uh, the way that Ukraine is using them or employing them is sensitive, then then yeah, I think it's it's less likely that you're going to see footage of it. I think I think I've seen very few videos of like a purpose built UGV. Um, a lot of them have been you know guys guys you know very far behind the front lines, uh, you know playing with playing with a you know an RC car that they modified. There's a lot more footage of that than there is of uh, anything that a, that a company has purpose built. I mean, I say this, I, I mentioned this, this this interesting development because one of the weapon systems that we have written about is, you know, the switchblade, as you call them, yeah. one-way attack drones. And there's maybe, like, obviously I, I don't follow Ukraine as well as maybe other places on Earth, but there's maybe like a handful of videos of that system. And we know that they're there. They've been sold thousands. So that's, that's a very interesting one, an example of, of a system that you barely get to see on video in Ukraine. And speaking of Ukraine, you know, there's no podcast that goes by and we don't speak, we don't talk about Wagner. They've become a, uh, a staple, <laughs> I think, of this podcast. We are going to do a, a dedicated one, a dedicated Wagner podcast where I think multiple people as a panel. And discuss because I don't, I know that there is, there are different views of Wagner, particularly there's a different Wagner in Ukraine than there is in Central African Republic or in Mali or Sudan, right? So, so that different faces and different applications. And me and Marcel talk about Wagner probably every other day, uh, <laughs> in our communications, but I'm also interested in, in the other PMCs, right? The, the, the Redoots, the Patriots. I mean, there's probably over over a dozen right now that has been uh, mentioned. But but if we talk about Wagner, we talk about their activities. The incident that happened, uh, speaking of great power competition, in Central African Republic where nine Chinese miners were killed, the first comments that came out was Wagner, then it was a little bit pushed back against, and where are we with that right now? Yeah, it's a uh, it's one of those cases where there's like a lot of claims and not and not as much evidence. And the actors who are investigating the claims are are themselves uh, not as trustworthy as you would. They're they're not impartial, I should say. So you had nine Chinese miners killed, a few more wounded. There there wasn't really a lot of evidence on who did it. The government came out immediately and said it was the CPC, which is a uh, which is a rebel, a rebel coalition. It's a, it's a big, it's a big organization. There's a lot of, you know, rebel subgroups in it, right? So there's a lot of, um, a lot of range for an actor to sort of, you know, go rogue in a sense and, and, and kill some miners. And so the government comes out and says it's the CPC. So the press, you know, goes to the CPC for comment and they say, no, it was Wagner that did it. And it's so, so we're sort of, we're sort of left in, in a, in a limbo of sorts where, where, you know, there's not a lot of hard evidence that ties it to either. And there's, there's motive for both. I would say that, I would say that there's slightly more motive for Wagner in the sense that they have previously gone after Chinese miners across the country. Um, there was an incident a couple of years ago where they were, uh, where they stole like excavators. Well, stole is a strong, uh, is, is not quite uh, what happened. They, they requisitioned them forcefully from Chinese miners, we should say. They borrowed them without giving them back. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, so, so there, so there has been clashes and, and Wagner is, is, uh, is active in that area. There's a great dynamics article on, on geo in, in car for Wagner sites. Uh, one of them is, is one of the mining sites in the area. So, so Wagner has its own sort of mining interests in the area and they've had clashes with Chinese miners before, but rebel groups have, have also had sort of clashes with Chinese miners, although less, Less lethally, I would say. Less. Uh, you you very recently had um, several, and this was since the killing of Chi- nine Chinese miners. You had thirteen or three. Yeah, you had a set of you had a set of Chinese miners that were just released. I think it was three. It was there were thirteen soldiers abducted and three miners. 
three Chinese miners were freed by the by the CPC after some negotiations on the complete other side of um, the complete other side of the country. So you have you know you have two big actors with a lot of sort of local autonomy on the ground and you know a lot of potential motive. And so, and so it's become more of a, a statement of, of not necessarily bias, but a statement that, you know, uh, you're, you're more against Wagner than the CPC or you're more against CPC than the Wagner in terms of who you blame for this. It is worth pointing out that the, that the Chinese government is very eager to get to the bottom of it. I think their ambassador in Bangui, the capital has, uh, has sort of demanded to be involved in the investigation. The, the government and the government official in charge of the investigation has like, has visited Wagner's camp outside of Bangui as well. So there's, uh, you know, whether, whether he was there to, you know, to ask some questions or whether he was there to, uh, to know what questions not to ask is a, is a, is another matter, I suppose. So it's, so it's messy. And, and I think the most recent piece of news is that the government sort of claimed that they found the perpetrators, which they claimed to be CPC. And they claimed that it was like mm-hmm. three, three guys from a, from a CPC subgroup, uh, that they captured who just happened to have all nine passports. You know, one rifle. So, so, so basically they, 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 yeah, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, it could, it could well be the case that they were dumb enough to keep all of the evidence of their murder and send it off with three guys in, in the middle of nowhere. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it seems that a lot of commentators are, are thinking that it's a bit of a stitch up. So yeah, it's an evolving story. Right. If it was Wagner, then what would be the motive? So, so Wagner has been growing in cars as, as a sort of a commercial actor. You know, they, they are involved in running a convoy from, from car into Cameroon to get access to the port because car is landlocked. They've been involved in, you know, selling beer. They've been involved in, in, you know, selling beer and, and vodka. They've been involved in, in, in mining as well in that of area. Course. Yeah, <laughs> of course. But, but it's, you know, I think there was recently, there was also recently news of like essentially them going after uh, Castel, which is a French, a French company for the sugar trade. You know, so, so they're, so they're becoming more and more interested in, in getting different revenue streams from their operations in car. I mean, it, it, on a local level, um, it's not clear how centrally directed Wagner is. And it's, and it's possible that they, you know, they decided, you know, we want access to this mine. We've had enough. We're going to go intimidate them. And maybe things got out of hand or maybe, you know, some actors on the ground decided that, you know, they're just going to, you know, try and get away with it. It's it's one of those cases where we sort of need more evidence because uh, it because it because at this point it just becomes you know like a speculation. But there is you know there's more than there's more than no motive. I guess is what is what I would say. No, it's it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, the questions on on Wagner in Africa are growing, and I mean, I think a little bit too late, especially yeah. if you look at the countries that they're that they're in. And we, we've talked about it at length, I think, in other podcasts, but also, you know, during our Sahel, we coverage the countries that they're involved in and, and what, to what extent they're involved in. But, but I, I'm very interested to see what sort of steps uh, are, are being taken to, to combat that. Or I don't know, because the, the point is from a lot of African perspectives. And, and I, if I may speak for an African perspective, I feel that there is, far more support for Russia or Russians than there is Western, particularly countries like France or colonial history. And I think that's a, that's a, a very interesting one. I had a conversation with somebody who is in the defense industry uh, yesterday where we talked about how countries like Russia, but also Turkey and to some extent Iran even, is going into countries that Western uh, peers believe that, oh, there's nothing there, or there's a misunderstanding, or they have such a low risk appetite that they don't even want to try. But then these, these actors are there, and then they, they ask themselves, yeah, how is that possible? You know, we follow good governance and they don't. And I think that risk taking by, particularly if you look at Wagner, is an interesting one because it is a state enterprise, whatever they say. So I, I don't know what your opinion is on, particularly from a U.S. Po- uh, foreign policy perspective. I mean, I've been, I've been, uh, <laughs> very negative about U.S. Africa policy for, for a while publicly. So I mean, that, yeah. I, I think, I think it's mostly just that there's, I think there's an element of like dismissiveness and hubris to it in, in the sense that 
you know, for the longest time, the West, I mean, for the longest time since the end of the Cold War, right? The West was the only game in town, right? If you're going to be a, if you're going to be a state like Eritrea, you know, you, you don't really have a counterbalance to the West. You know, if you, if you, uh, if you, if you sort of launch a coup or something, there's, 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 you know, and you don't have the West support when you do it, I should say, uh, you know, the, the West was the only game in town. Um, and, and the sort of international communities, you know, the World Bank and, and, all these, all these institutions were, were sort of your, your only real option. I mean, I guess you had like Gaddafi, uh, for, for a while as, 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 you know, as sort of, you know, we have, we have counterbalance at home kind of deal. Mm-hmm. But, but what we're seeing with, with, and it's not just Russia, right? It's, you know, it's China economically, um, more so than security, the UAE, Turkey, right? And, and to a certain yeah. extent, you know, I think we'll probably see, um, some African countries sort of emerge in a more in a more proactive role. I think maybe maybe Ethiopia, Rwanda, Rwanda, Rwanda for sure. Potentially South Africa might be interested in, in sort of getting involved a little bit more again. Mm-hmm. You know, potentially Nigeria and Ethiopia if their uh, internal internal uh, internal issues are uh, get a bit better. So so there's a lot of there's a lot of other options now, uh, at least from the perspective of protecting protecting your regime if you're if you're an african leader who's sort of on the outs with the west mm. so 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 there is a bit of a, a hubris in, in saying you know in, in suddenly the west turning around and going oh my gosh like i can't believe these african countries don't want to work with us after we sort of uh you know after we've had this uh not complete autonomy but but you know enormous basically uncontested influence in africa and it and it still hasn't resolved a lot of the core issues africans face Right in the security realm and in, in the economic realm and the in the regional integration realm. So I think it's I think it's a good sign that that Macron is is going around saying I'm going to scale back France's military presence in Africa and I'm going to co-locate. You know mm-hmm. when there's French, when there are French forces they're they're more likely to be co-located with host nation forces. I think it's good that U.S. officials are. I think Kamala Harris just went to Ghana, I think and uh, mm-hmm. and promised you know 150 million dollars. Uh, I think it's, I think it's a bit late, right? The time, the time to have, you know, invested in, in African partnerships and African prosperity is, has been the last, you know, 20 or 30 years. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I think that this is more of a, a reaction to the prospect of, of losing, uh, uh, of losing uncontested influence that is driving this more so than a, than a genuine effort to make partnerships with Africa. And I think Africans know that, you know, mm-hmm. I think it's, I think, you know, Africa, I think Africans are, are, Sort of aware that aware what the drivers of U.S. engagement are, and and are aware that it, you know it could it could go away if if uh, if Africa doesn't become quite as intense uh, an arena for great power competition as as U.S. military uh, commentators are, are saying on blogs and uh, and on, and on yeah. uh, think tanks. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's cool to talk about how it's a you know how, how to talk about like hard power and military power in 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 great power competition. And, and talk about things like hypersonic missiles and, you know, war in, in space or militarization of space and these type of things. But it's the grassroots where particularly the West's lunch is being eaten. If you look at, well, there was an example, we talked about this in a previous podcast where Zelensky did a speech for the African Union and only three leaders turned. Yeah. And which is a bit of an embarrassment because like, first of all, just to think, because everybody in the West has been applauding Zelensky whenever he shows up, and in in and in certain cases they should to think about all oh, Africans will just fall in line and they will do it too. And and also speaking about Africans as a monolith is obviously wrong because it's over fifty countries and they have different you know competing policies and, and understandings and cultures. But for only three to show up for me it was very telling. And I think the opportunity that at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of interest through, through, you know, grain and, you know, fertilizer from, from Ukraine as well as Russia that, that Africans rely on. So they, they, they're not anti-Ukrainian. They're just not pro-Ukrainian. And, and they, they rather stand in the middle and, and don't pick sides. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's a really important point because when, when sort of the United Nations General Assembly, right, voted, uh, voted to condemn, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a lot was made about African countries not supporting Ukraine. But if you look, the vast majority of African countries that, that didn't vote in favor, uh, of that measure abstained, 
they didn't vote against it. You know, you had like Eritrea who yeah. like, okay, cool. No one cares, uh, you know, voting against it. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of African countries are, are you know, are <laughs> rightly focused on a lot of regional and, and local issues and, and don't necessarily, don't necessarily feel that they should be putting, you know, everything they've got into, into an issue that's, that it, that does impact them, right? Uh, the, the supply of fertilizer, mm-hmm. the supply of grain, In the case of countries like Algeria, right? The supply of weapons. <laughs> but I don't know. Ultimately, I think there's just, uh, there's just sort of a ambivalence towards it. There's one thing I've, I've, I've spoken about this in private, or I've spoken about this with clients and, and people that, that ask me about it. But I also think it's a missed opportunity. Uh, I know the Ukrainians had a lot on his mind and, and Zelensky had a lot on his mind. But when the second invasion broke out and there was this mass exodus of refugees and people leaving uh, Ukraine, you saw a lot of images <clears throat> from media outlets and, and maybe not as many Western outlets where you saw like very open, hostile discrimination of, of Africans, right? African students that were there Absolutely. to study Ukraine and had nothing to do with the invasion or staying for that because they're not citizens. And the, the, the treatment of, of Africans has not gone unnoticed in a lot of African capitals and in leadership. So Zelensky right there could have said, you know, hey, cut this out. We're in this together. We need to support. But not a peep came from, from the Ukrainian government, not a single peep. And then like I've spoken to people from multiple countries close to leadership. And that is a thought that went into their minds also. Like, all right. So when our people were in trouble and needed support too, you were not there. Right. So there, there are outside of like local issues and, and regional issues you mentioned, there are personal ones too. When, when some media outlets are saying, you know, Hey, this is different than Afghanistan or this is different than Syria or this is different than Ethiopia, Eritrea refugees. And these people look like us. They are from civilized Europe. This is not helping you in any shape or fashion. And, and there, and if there's no pushback against that, I mean, commentators have pushed back again, but like mainstream or legacy media has not really made a big point. Maybe the Al Jazeera's of this world. But I think that's an important point to have because when we cover Africa as great dynamics, we saw that in Sahel week, we get pushed back. Oh, you guys are just holding the Western line, right? Even though we are, we are, we are publishing intelligence, we're disseminating intelligence and not opinion pieces or where or we, there's no such for us we unless it's like an article where we can be more the author has more opportunity to talk about their vision and their argument i think in an intelligence report we don't pick sides we just talk about what we think is going on and what's what's going to happen next right and mm-hmm. so having uh, speaking about wagner's Crimes in, in Mali is not saying that, well, France is better or, or France atrocities are in car are better or something like that. We're not saying that. We're not, we're just saying like, hey, this is what's going on. The, the, the violence recorded is far more than the last 10 years combined in 2022. These are worrying signs and the country is looking like it's, it's, it's going back into a failed state. I mean, somebody told me about Burkina Faso is, is maybe three major attacks away of being a failed state, right? Which oh, yeah. is super worrying, right? And something f- to think about. So I just wanted to mention that because, and as some people listening to this podcast may not know this, but I was born in Africa, you know? So, and, and I consider myself still African, even though I grew up in the West and, and I've spent, and when people message me or, or comment on great dynamics work and say, well, my, maybe you should go to these countries. <laughs> I've been to these countries, <laughs> long periods of time. I worked in these countries and I speak, I've spoken to a lot of people, which is why I think we are authoritative enough to talk about it. Sorry, I went, I went off on a little bit of a, of a run there, but there's something I wanted to say because it's been something that's been bothering. And in these podcasts, we can talk a little bit more about that than in, in a situation where I'm talking with a guest mm. who's speaking about their own projects and these type of things. But, Coming back to where we were, 
uh, <laughs> something I wanted to something I wanted to talk to you also about was you know you've written a lot about one way attack drones and they they use it in Ukraine from the Ukrainian side as well as from the Russian side <laughs> and and the pivotal role of Iran in supplying those drones. We've seen attacks now in in Syria against U.S. forces by Iranian-backed militias and uh, using Iranian drones. Have you looked at that and, and, and what's your opinion and, and what's your insight on on that development? Yeah, I mean, I'm not gonna. Yeah, I, I'm not gonna talk too much about uh, the state of the Syrian conflict just because that's not just because that's not necessarily my area. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of these, these two recent attacks, I think the first was in January and the second was in, second was in March. And these aren't the first, uh, instances of attacks on, uh, coalition bases where, where U.S. forces and, uh, mm-hmm. Syrian forces are, are co-located. Syrian, uh, I shouldn't say Syrian forces and it's not the Syrian military, but, you know. SDF. U.S. partners in Syria. Mm-hmm. The first one, uh, the first of these two attacks in January, uh, is I think the one we know the most about at this point. And it's interesting to talk about for a couple of reasons. The main takeaway is that is that they uh, is that they launched, I guess, three uh, Iranian-made drones. And these aren't uh, these aren't Shahed's, right? These aren't the uh, I guess more sophisticated kind of one-way attack drones. They they sort of they looked like ones that have been supplied to this region for a while, have been supplied to Yemen, etc. Shorter shorter range, smaller payload, but still still a challenge. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this is that the base they launched against had at least one coyote counter UAS system, you know, which is, which is one of the, you know, the U S government has put a lot of money into countering small drones and smaller drones. This is one of the systems that they've deployed for that. Um, and it did successfully shoot down two of the drones, but the third one got through and injured a bunch of people. I don't necessarily know whether this is the case for the second one yet, because a lot of details haven't come out, but with the second one, it seems like there was a radar down at that base. So their detection of these drones was lower. I don't know whether I don't necessarily. Some people said that was purposeful. That that you know these 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 uh, militia groups knew that that you know U.S. radars were down. I'm not totally sure if that's the case, but it but it did end up killing a U.S. contractor and injuring a bunch of other people. Yeah. Do you think, like we saw in Saudi Arabia and UAE, where the Houthis were launching drones and cruise missiles, do you think that this is also probing of, of, of U.S. made out to U.A.S. solutions could be replicated perhaps in Ukraine or other places. I think it's, I think it's definitely revealing a weakness with these systems, which, which yeah. I think, I think has also been revealed in Saudi and the UAE, which is, which is that, you know, at a certain point, mass will overcome some of these systems. And this is especially the case for, and this is where it's really relevant for the U.S. for, uh, expeditionary warfare. Right, where where you have uh, you know a remote a remote base, right, or a, or a fob or an outpost uh, that doesn't necessarily have as as sophisticated a, a detection and, and CUAS network as as like a you know the mainland US or or a larger installation might. So it's revealing. I, my understanding is at least for these attacks, it was more to impose costs on the US presence in Syria. Which, which it successfully did, right? Because it sort of brought the, the issue of U.S. presence in Syria back into the limelight. I was watching the, the Secretary mm-hmm. of Defense and, you know, other, other senior military people testify before Congress, right? And this was, this was suddenly, you know, in the middle of the Ukraine war and in the middle of broader discussions about competition with China, right? Syria, Syria was suddenly at the forefront of that discussion. So it's, you know, I, I think, I think it's less that it's, that it's sort of a, a tactical benefit but for learning about the coyote and more both a reflection of how useful one-way attack drones are as a way to impose costs on the U.S. and sort of the strategic messaging of we can we can touch you, we can touch your bases without running up close with like a mortar or uh, or other ways that militants have historically gone after U.S. Uh, bases. Yeah, very interesting. This concept, I think, uh, what's his name? Um, John Robb, who I would love to have on the podcast, wrote a book about this, A New Way of War, where he talks about, I think he calls it open source warfare, where using low cost techniques against high cost targets can like cause supply chain disruptions. And uh, I thought that was very interesting. And we're seeing that now, the stuff that, that he talked about maybe like eight or nine years ago, we're seeing now more and more uh, obviously, we saw the Ukraine. We're seeing it in 
Myanmar. I want to do a podcast on Myanmar because I think what's happening there is is very interesting and but also important to follow. And there's the great power competition also plays a role in that country where different factions are supported by 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 different countries and agencies around the world. I think you know we we've we've gone a little bit longer than we normally do, but I wanted to talk to you about the one of the favorite uh, search engine optimized topics <laughs> online right now, chat GPT and its role in, in intelligence analysis. We've written a little bit about it and, we, and we've spoken about it in a previous episode. I think it was the episode with, uh, with Mike Evans, but I know you wanted to, you wanted to talk about it a little bit yeah, or go into it. Yeah. I think, I, I think there's a lot of, I mean, so generally, right. There's a lot of discussion about chat GPT and it's, I think it's caused a new wave of anxiety, right? Like a robot's going to replace us. Uh, you know, that, that sort of anxiety that existed 30 or 40 years ago is, is now sort of happening again, but for a, a different segment of the workforce, we should say. Yeah. But there's also been sort of a growing, growing discourse about the use of chat GPT in intelligence. And, and it's sort of, mm-hmm. it feels like a really limited discussion to me because they almost always talk about it as a tool for intelligence analysis. But it, but it strikes me that the main mm-hmm. benefit of chat GPT if we're going to use the sort of, if we're going to engage in the, in the yeah. problematic traditional intelligence cycle, right? And I was planning mm-hmm. to, to talk about a little bit about this in, in, in the course that we're going to launch down the line. Its main utility, it seems to me, is in processing the processing stage because there's, there's a lot of information out there, you know, that's, that's collected. There's a lot of, even, even within, you know, even within just open source or even just within social media. Right. There's a lot more data than than, you know, an individual analyst or an individual collector could possibly like process themselves in traditional methods. I think where chat GPT and sort of generative AI is going to be very obviously coming in handy is is sort of sorting that and making sense of it. And even if it doesn't do it perfectly, you know, if it's able to do, you know, 80 percent right of what of what you need, um, that saves you a lot of time and energy. And it gives you a, you know, as an organization, right? And as a, as a analyst or a processor, it gives you a competitive advantage, right? I was watching a webcast on using chat GPT and one of the speakers said, uh, it's not that AI will replace you. It's that a person using AI who knows how to use, you know, AI effectively will replace you Bingo. in the way that someone who knows how to use a computer will, will, would have replaced yeah. you 40 or 50 years ago. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so there's that. I think it's also useful potentially for dissemination. You know, if you, if you, if you put together a lot of work and you put it and you give it to an AI and you say, you know, make, make this into a uh, breaching slides, make this into a, uh, into a graphic that's, you know, visually yeah. pleasing. I think there's also, there's also that as well, but those are the, I think those are, those are the real, um, for if you're like an intelligence analyst or you're involved in intelligence cycle or you're an intelligence manager, I think that's where you get the most value add. Cause I've tried to, you know, get chat GPT and granted chat, chat GPT is not the only AI, right? It's not going to be. Um, but I've tried to get it to do like intelligence assessments and stuff, and it doesn't really it doesn't really work that well. Um, no. And granted, I could just be giving it the wrong prompts, and and we're still in the early stage. But I, I think there's more utility for like the hard, easy questions, uh, less the interpretive stuff. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I think on even on on the side of collection plans, uh, designing a collection plan format, or if you pose a question. Or you pose a problem to ChatGPT saying, you know, what are my information collection requirements, you know, collection requirements assessment that you can do. Well, maybe it's not an assessment. It's just that it can give you ideas where to go from there. And also where I think where structured analytic techniques, and we will go into this in the, in the course too, but looking at things like indicators and warning and indicators and warning you can put in a, a piece of text or a problem into ChatGPT and say, Hey, can you give me five indicators that I should be worrying about or that I should be looking at to monitor if this is going to escalate or de-escalate or so these type of things, I think it can do and can do to a decent standard for it to be useful. And I, yeah, I really like it. I have no qualms about it. The one qualm I would have about it is the data it's drained on. Yeah. Because I hear that it's not connected to the internet, but I think it is. I mean, it, it obviously is. I'll, I'll, I'll give it a hyperlink and I'll tell it to respond to it. 
Yeah. Uh, I did that as a, as a joke once on Twitter because there was an alarmist article about ChatGPT. So I asked ChatGPT mm. to reflect on it and then replied with that reply. Yeah. And, and, it, and it could read it. No, it's interesting. It could read it. So <laughs> mm. I think there is going to be a, a bigger question, right? Of, um, I mean, ChatGPT is just one, you know, one company's generative AI. Mm-hmm. And right now it's free, right? And I do wonder if we're going to get to the point where we're going to have like, competing AI products and if we're going to have like AI as a search engine, you know what I mean? Like you're going to have ChatGPT and then mm-hmm. ChatGPT Enterprise, you know, with a lot of the the regulations taken off. You know, I, I, I get I get the impression that this is a very uh, free and open space right now and that it's uh, it, it I think it's not going to be as free and open going forward, if that makes sense. Well, they have a plus version. Yeah. That you can pay for, right? It doesn't give you as much, but Especially if you look at, I think chat GPT right now runs on GPT three framework. And as when GPT four comes in chat GPT, it's going to be very interesting to see because I've played around with that a little bit. And that is also sometimes it's scary how good it is at certain things. And particularly if you want to find very niche topics, I think as as you said in earlier about this, that I think it's, it's a, it's a tool like anything else that can empower the process of, uh, of an intelligence analyst. And I think, you know, if you can use it to your benefit without feeding it sensitive data, then you should, you know, use it and, uh, you should, you know, use it as an advantage. And there are people that I know, consultants, uh, other types of, of jobs that tell me now that their whole job has been condensed from a full 40 hour week to a one half, uh, one and a half day a week that they are working on, on these problems. Right. Yeah. Just don't tell the boss that, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and for us as our own team in great dynamics, I encourage people to use it, but don't use it to write your reports because I can tell right now I can tell. Yeah. If they used it, but I think our our team is honest enough to also know, like, hey, this is not working for me, or this this would be considered, you know, reckless to 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 take an assessment from uh, from from ChatGPT that would fundamentally change what my sourcing or my sources say. So so in that regard, I, I am very positive about it, and 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 I encourage people to use it, particularly in you know the editing of their work. As you said, summarizing for the dissemination, proofreading, proofreading, right? We we did a little experiment on active voice and passive voice, right? And I, I put in a prompt where it's, I said, you know, create a table on the left side, put in all the examples of passive voice, and on the right side, put in all the like active versions of that, right? So. The analyst that has the opportunity to pick and choose which one he would use or which one they would leave. Yeah. Right? So there's an alternative of, so in those kind of situations, I really like it and I think it's really good. And as you said, I think Benjamin Strick was a guest on the show and, and I really respect his work. He, he put in some interesting prompts on, on, on LinkedIn where, you know, you, you create, you create an article. And you take that article and you say, create from the article, put it into a table, make a a presses from that article, create a five minute a piece slide deck for that article, Uh, create a video script of the article, create a Twitter thread of the article. These are from dissemination perspective, very interesting things that, I mean, I think marketing, copywriting, tech is using. And I think us as intelligence uh, professionals can learn from that and we can pick and choose what we use, but I think it's beneficial right now to use it. Yeah. Yeah. And it also, it also highlights the, uh, the need to, as an analyst, sort of work on, work on developing skills that AI just doesn't have, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, those, those sort of critical thinking skills, those, uh, you you know, your understanding of what your audience, right. What your intelligence customer wants. Mm. Uh, and that way, you know, that way AI isn't necessarily replacing you. It's just replacing all the work you don't want to do. Exactly. And like all the busy, all the busy work. Yeah. Not as well said. I think we've, we've, we've mentioned this a couple of times and, and we are almost to the, towards the end of our 
of this podcast, but also to the end of the development of the course and that, that we've been working on for a while now. And I think these are the type of things that will play a role in, in what tools and what techniques we give analysts to not just do intelligence analysis and or research or investigations or anything that you would do in that type of role today, but also how that role would look tomorrow. Right. And yeah, somewhat future proofing, you know, your, your, your career in a sense and, and your skill set. And it's a continuous process. And, you know, if, if you don't learn, it's, it's, it's learn or die. You know, it's a bit extreme thing to say, but that's, <laughs> that's the world that we, that we live in today, you know, so you have to continuously develop yourself and, and understand also that, that our intelligence consumers are also learning. And they're asking questions about these tools and these techniques and, and the world at large. And I think that's something that we at Great Dynamics, we embody that. I feel that that's, you know, I've been our quest from the beginning, looking at, at novel problems, looking at novel techniques, looking at novel uses of technology by groups, non-state actors, uh, as well as state actors. So and we will keep on doing that. And I think that's an interesting domain and I think we, we feel very comfortable in it and if anybody's interested in it I would say you know follow us on social media but above all you know that there, there is something that we don't talk about enough is you know subscribe to greatanalytics.com and you know, get get a subscription because you can read our complete reports our complete insights as well as you know if you're a top secret subscriber you can communicate directly with us with the analysts that you want to read their work, you can perhaps direct their attention to certain problems and issues that you're interested in. And yeah, it's, 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 it's a growing community and we are very selective in who we let it, but that makes the community, I think, so, so strong. And, uh, yeah, sorry for that little sales pitch there, uh, Marcel. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it is, it is true though. You know, they getting a for I think the way it works right now is, uh, you know, when you click on someone's report uh, and you're not subscribed, you kind of you see the top line judgments. Um, mm-hmm. And those are, you know, those are good. Those are useful in and of themselves. But I think a lot of people when they're when they're doing research, you know, they they want to know, uh, you know, the fuller the fuller picture, more of the context behind it, maybe some of the, the background, the history of it. And that's what the subscription gets you is uh, in addition to, you know, access to the analyst, you also get. You know, a lot more, a lot more context for the key judgments and stuff in the reports. Yeah, and sourcing. Yeah, and sourcing. That's the other one. And and for people that I've I've been asked this before, majority of our sourcing is not just open source. There are human sources in there too. We don't spell their names out in it, or we don't link it necessarily. But we do mention that in in our uh, analytic summary at the end, which is something that actually Marcel pioneered. To adding that into our reports, <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and that's something that you know, as as much as it benefits an analyst, right, to think about uh, where their sources are coming from, what gaps there might be. It also benefits you uh, as a subscriber to, to read, you know, to read to read that analytic summary and basically uh, not just see all of the information, but see where the analyst is coming from. Um, see that the analyst has obviously considered the other the other possibilities before uh, you know assessing assessing one way or the other on an issue. Absolutely. Marcel, time flew by. I thank you for your insights, the work that you've been involved in, and uh, and also for listening and and keeping up with my rants and my uh, <laughs> quirky ideas. Is there any final remarks that you would part with, or ideas, or topics? Uh, I can recommend. I can recommend a video game. You want to? Do, you want to? You want me to do that? There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Go ahead. So I would say, so this is, this is an indie game. Uh, there's two of them, actually. There's, there's Orwell. It's Orwell and it's Orwell 2. And I would say it's a game where you play as sort of a kind of an intelligence analyst. You're, you're essentially like an investigator for this, you know, this fantasy sort of 1984 Orwellian state. But the way that you, the way that you play the game is you have a fake desktop and you interact with, uh, you know, different sites and tools and stuff. And so I'm not going to, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that it's, uh, you know, Gonna be uh, gonna be more fun than Call of Duty necessarily, but uh, but it is 
it is sort of interesting. <laughs> it is interesting to see, you know, how video games talk about, uh, you know, the role of uh, intelligence uh, as the government does it. So it is, uh, you know, those are interesting and they're usually, you know, on sale for pretty cheap and you don't need a very good computer to run it. Uh, so it's, so I think those, those are worth checking out if, uh, if you have some free time and you're predisposed to games. Great. Is there any other cultural recommendation? I completely forgot to ask you this. Apologies. <laughs> I'm rewatching, uh, I'm rewatching Narcos. All right. Uh, with, with Mrs. on, on Netflix. That's, uh, any particular reason? She hadn't seen it before. My wife. Oh, okay. uh, so, so that's kind of, that's part of the reason. But I think it was, it's, it's interesting to rewatch it. I think when it came out, I wasn't very, I think I was still a teenager. I was thinking I was in college. So I wasn't mm-hmm. very far into my career at all. So it's interesting watching it after, you know, having worked in intelligence for a few years, uh, not with the DEA necessarily. And obviously they, uh, move things around and romanticize and, and exaggerate a lot mm-hmm. in the show. But, uh, it is, it is interesting to come at it from a new, from a new perspective. And it's interesting to see, uh, you know, early Pedro Pascal, you know, who's, oh, yeah. who's, who's yeah. uh, really hot in Hollywood right now. He is. I mean, I think there was a, a short cameo in Game of Thrones also that he had. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was that It was that in Game of Thrones really early on. But I feel like he's just really blown up between Last of Us, which I haven't seen yet. And um, he was in the Nick Cage but, movie. Yeah, but Mandalorian too. Oh yeah, Mandalorian, of course. Yeah, but he's, yeah. you know, he's sort of, uh, <laughs> he's not really, I mean, he's in it, yeah, like, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, he's not really, his face is not really in it. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. Like, if I mean, uh, you, you reminded me, I wanted to give, I know I'm a little bit late to the game, but I wanted to give like a huge shout out to Andor, the show. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. The Star Wars show. Andor, I think from, from my, my own personal career and knowing something about counterinsurgency and, and, and how counterintelligence works, how, how networks are run. That show really does a fantastic job. Whoever recommend, whoever advised on that show, uh, knows what they're talking about. Yeah. I, I think some of the writers were involved in like the Americans and the Bourne movies. Uh, so I think they oh, were yeah. taking a lot of that sort of, uh, good work. Yeah. Uh, and applying it to the Star Wars universe and, and God did Star Wars need a, a more mature, uh, thoughtful, uh, thoughtful, yeah. uh, you know, franchise. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I love the Mandalorian and we, we are just waiting for it to finish so we can binge it. But yeah, Andor was absolutely like fussel and it's a bit slow burn in the beginning, but it's, it's really, really good. I mean, it's one of the best recommendations that you guys have given me. I, I know multiple people in the team have been telling me to watch it and I've not, but now I have finally. So I feel I'm, uh, that I waited a little bit too long, but it, it is, it is a very, yeah, it's a very cool show. It's, it's a very interesting show. There's another yeah. one that I, that I walked into by accident while I was traveling and there was not, I had nothing to do. So, so I found this show. It's called, uh, I think it's called Condor and uh, it's with, I forgot his name. He just won an Oscar for the whale. Oh, Brendan Fraser. He was in a Brendan Fraser. That's it. Yeah. Brendan Fraser has amazing role in it, but it's, it's a, it's a story about uh, an intelligence analyst that gets involved into something that he shouldn't be involved in. And his whole team gets taken out and then it becomes like a whole chase. And it's oh, basically cool. what Jack Ryan should have been <laughs> the last season, even the second season. Uh, I know that people give Jack Ryan, uh, the show, uh, you know, hard time, but yeah, the last season was a bit all over the place, and I think the first season is is uh, is amazing. It's it's really good. Yeah, it's good. It's good TV. Yeah, but the second and the third one not like, but Condor is really good. <laughs> if, if you're interested in any like Intel security related topics, and I've been playing. I mean, we talked about this already privately, but I've been trying to play Ghost of Tsushima. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and I was playing. And I was playing it on hard setting. <laughs> it's been an absolute slog to get through that, but, uh, yeah, really cool game. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, uh, from adversity comes, uh, comes discipline and skill, right? The, uh, you know, there you go. There <laughs> I'm you go. sure that's, there's, that's, uh, that's a good one to, yeah, you're doing your own, uh, pressure makes diamonds is the, uh, is the, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, only if diamonds are valuable. I don't know if me finishing the game or it's a really yeah. valuable uh, yeah. knowledge. It's, it's insurgency experience. <laughs> there you go. Uh, it is actually insurgency experience. Yeah, that's a good one. Actually, I didn't even think about. That. <laughs> yeah, you can expense it. Yeah, the, the the game is actually from an insurgent's perspective, right? Yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah, again, thank you so much, Marcel. It was really good, and uh, I mean, we will see you soon. Enough, you'll pop up again. Oh yeah, you can't get rid of, of these episodes. Yeah, <laughs> we tried and tried, but it's not working. <laughs> and yeah, for people listening, thank you. If you made it this far, thank you so much for for listening to the podcast. I've gotten so many positive remarks. Uh, I don't think there's anything that, that we as Great Dynamics, a team and me individually are involved in that has given me so much positive feedback or feedback in general. And I want to thank everybody. You know who you are, the people that reach out to me personally and that, that have been fans of the podcast. Thank you so much. If I can ask you guys a favor, there's something that would help us a lot. First of all, we are on YouTube now. So clips of the podcast as well as the full podcast. And soon we're going to do like video reports that are going to be on our, on our uh, YouTube page. You know, so subscribe please to that. And secondly, if you listen to the podcast on Spotify or on Apple, I know most of you guys listen to it on Apple. Please, you know, give us a review and, and give us feedback, you know, give us whatever we, you think we deserve. Because, yeah, that, that's really helpful. And subscribe to Great Dynamics. It also helps us keep this podcast out free from ads and sponsors. And because I don't really want to do that, but it's cutting more and more into my time. Mm. But if you guys subscribe, it helps us continue to do this and keeps us a high level of content as well as, as guests coming on. So, uh, yeah, thank you guys for that. One last thing I wanted to mention was on the 12th of April. So if you're listening after the 12th of April to this podcast, I'm sorry about that, but you can listen to the recording. I think uh, we are we are launching uh, our report that we did with Rusi and the Royal Institute. Royal United Services Institute. Services Institute, that's it. Yeah. yeah. Apologies. And the UN Women, a project that we did, a year-long project last year on the influence or the impact potential impact of, of uh, Al-Shabaab terrorist group in Kenyan elections from 2022 perspective, but also we've done a historical analysis looking at uh, incidents in, in 2017 elections and 12-13. Uh, so if you're interested in that, you want to know anything about it, there's a webinar that I will be speaking and answering questions together with some of my awesome colleagues from both these organizations and from the reInvent team which is more a long-term counter-terrorism or counter-violent extremism project that is being run in, in Kenya. And if you're interested in those type of topics, come by, ask questions, or just listen and support us on all the platforms. We will also share Marcel's socials and where you can bother him instead of me. <laughs> Marcel, is there anything that you're working on that's coming out? Besides our work on, on the course, uh, I think I'm going to be talking at Georgetown's Africa-China initiative on Wagner. Very briefly, I'll be one of three speakers since it's the Africa-China initiative, not the uh, Africa-China Wagner initiative. I'm sort of a, a, a black sheep there. And yeah. uh, I should I should have articles coming out soon for the Irregular Warfare Center, which is a, a West Point and, and other institutions joint publication, and uh, one for uh, CTC Sentinel, which is a West Point publication uh, as well. And that stuff's on um, one-way attack zones and Wagner, respectively. So you know, it's moving at the speed of academia. So look out for that in, uh, you know, two to three years, whatever, whenever they release it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you look at it, though, you've been very prolific in your publications. So you've been doing a great job with that. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a way to deal with anxiety. <laughs> yeah. Just publish endlessly. That's a way. Of, that's that's an interesting way of looking at it. I would say this, right? We are working on a on a on a project. I don't know if it's going to be published or not on on the market. Two projects actually. One I know is going to be published, but I don't want to say too much about it because it's still early days. But there's another one that we might be doing with a media organization. Marcel probably knows which one that is, but uh, oh yeah, very exciting stuff. Yeah, I'm not sure about that yet, but we'll see. Marcel, again, thank you so much, man. I appreciate all your your efforts, your insights. And there's some people who asked me, by the way, on our Instagram. I'm gonna get. Marcel involved this weekend. I'm going to bother him <laughs> to be involved in our Ask Me Anything. If you have any questions for Marcel, 
specifically oh, his, no. uh, his experience. Please ask me so he can ask some questions in, uh, in our a- Saturday AMAs that we do. That would be good if, if, if he doesn't mind, obviously. Oh yeah. No, no, no. I'll, I'll definitely answer questions. Yeah. Because this one question that I got a lot is from us service members, former service members, as well as active service members that want to join the intelligence community in the U.S. And I think you can give them some good insights from an, from an analyst perspective. Oh yeah. You could do a whole podcast on that. Yeah, don't give me ideas, man. I, I'm also afraid that my my, my British followers and, and supporters uh, <laughs> will feel like, "Hey, why are you highlighting the US so much and not giving, let alone you know the Europeans?" But we're gonna do more. I'm I'm I'm, I'm hoping to do a a series on intelligence and special operations, and we're hoping to have like people, maybe even active duty people as guests on a podcast we're not sure if they're going to be just guests on a podcast or we're going to do video interviews but that's something that we are working on if you are an analyst in a special operations capacity please reach out i would love to hear from you i know a lot of you have already reached out but that's the stuff that i don't really can talk about but but if you want to if you want to be a guest or whatever yeah let me know i'm really interested yeah show us your challenge coins yeah (laughs) (laughs) there you go All right, guys. Thank you again. And I see you next week. And uh, Marcel, see you sometime soon. Yeah, thanks for having me on.